Hope Church. Uh, we're going to be uh, taking a little bit of a break from our study um, in the book of Acts. And uh, the study of the book of Acts is, is this history of the early church. And if you think about it, um, if it's not for the resurrection of Jesus, there is no book of Acts. There is no history of the early church because there is no early church. Um, it all hinges on the resurrection because the people who uh, went to share that message with the world um, were not immediately convinced uh, that they should be sharing this message. You know, once Jesus had died on the cross and he's in the tomb and they are, you know, unsure of what the future holds. Uh, they don't fully understand the promises that um, God had made in the Old Testament and the promises that, you know, Jesus had, had made in his, in his public teaching. And so they are fearful. You know, you have people like, you know, Peter who even denied that he knew Jesus. And yet just a few chapters a few you know, pages later in the book of Acts, we find him uh, preaching this powerful message at Pentecost where the, the church is really born and, and gets its start. And so it's the resurrection of Jesus that changed everything for them and changes everything in terms of human history. And so without the physical, historical, real resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no church. There's no reason to gather together here this morning. There's no reason for anybody in the world to be gathered together today or on any Sunday. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, it's a real historical, actual fact, then that does change everything. Then there is reason to gather here today. There is reason to worship him today. There is reason to gather together every Sunday, and to remember Jesus as we take the bread and the cup. Because ultimately, we are about Jesus. We are not about an organization. We are not about a, a building. This is true whether somebody has that or not. We're not about a particular preacher or teacher except for Jesus Christ himself. It's all to revolve and be central to him. And it's at the church's great peril when it forgets that. You know, there are people who are meeting today. There'll be people, there'll be, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world that will be going to billion, going to meetings today and putting on their Sunday best out of a tradition, out of a ritual, but not actually believing that Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of the tomb. That's just a waste of time. That's just a waste of time. Because he either did or he didn't. There's no in-between on that. You know, it's, it's one of those deals where Jesus either did rise from the dead or he didn't rise from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, why pretend that, he, that anything is unique about this Sunday or any other Sunday? Why, you know, it's just like going through a bunch of rituals, but without... The reality of it, it doesn't make any difference to anything. But if, in fact, Jesus was laid in that tomb a dead man, and on Sunday morning rose and walked out, 
then that, has, that changes everything. That changes everything in terms of history, in terms of human history and eternity. And it changes everything. It should change everything for us as a community. It should change everything for you as an individual. It should change everything for you as an individual if Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. So let's look at this a little bit more this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, and as we talk about the implications of this today. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning, the privilege to look into your word. We pray that you would teach us from it, that we would understand it. Lord, we, thank, we are thankful that throughout the scriptures you prove yourself to be true when you do what you say you will do. And what you have said, you have done, so much of it you have already done. And what hasn't been done yet will be done. And we give thanks in your precious name. And Jesus, we meet to you this morning. We come to you and we say that you are our risen Savior, our risen King. And we ask you for the strength that we would be humble before you and that we would submit our very lives to you. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Because when we talk about the importance of the resurrection, uh, it really is the key central element of our faith. Now, for there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. There, you know, there was the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. Now, here's the reality of it. Many were executed on Roman crosses throughout history. Many were executed on Roman crosses. And so if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he's just another man who died on another Roman cross. But if he rose from the dead, then that gives validity to the mission. It proves the, the, the power and the reality of why he went to that cross in the first place. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he came for that purpose to die. He came for that person, purpose, that mission, to give his life for us. That's why he went to the cross. And that cross is where we see the perfect intersection of the realities that God is love and that God is holy. God is holy and sin cannot be in his presence, and so there has to be a payment. But God is also love. And therefore, God in the flesh, the Son of God, Christ incarnate, comes and lives among us and goes and dies on a filthy cross for filthy sinners like you and me. And so that's where his love and his holiness are perfectly intersected at the cross because there had to be a payment because his holiness demanded justice and without the full payment of sin, there is not justice. That's one of the central things about God and his holiness, that he is a just God. Well, for God to be fully just, there has to be a payment for, the, for the, the penalty, the penalty of our sin. But he didn't want to leave us separated from him. He didn't want to leave us having to pay our own penalty. And so Jesus dies in our place so that we can be reconciled to him. And yet people didn't fully understand it. Even the disciples who had gone with him for three years didn't fully understand what it meant 
when Jesus said, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. They didn't fully get it. But in John chapter 20, it says on the first day of the week, John chapter 20 verse 1, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already rolled away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the other disciple who Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Just notice something there. Um, you know, the, the, the resurrection is not anticipated in, that, in those statements. It's like, we don't know what happened to his body. We don't know where they put him. It's like not believing. And this, is, and this tells you throughout the narratives, you tell you that if you, were, if you were trying just to make up a story, you wouldn't put these sort of things in it. You wouldn't put the doubts. You wouldn't put the unbelief. And so Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they, went, they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. John lets us know he's faster, but he doesn't want to say his own name about it. <laughs> he got there first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there in the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first come into the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their own homes. The Apostle Paul says in first. Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, I passed on to you what was most important, what had also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, and he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And so here we have, you know, these, this key element, again for us, that you know, the disciples didn't fully understand until, you know, Peter when he sees the empty tomb, when he sees the grave clothes of Jesus there, that's his moment. That's his moment of true faith. And so that brings a question, you know, to you this morning and to myself, you know, what was your moment of true faith? Where was, what was that moment when you went from unbelieving to believing? What was that moment that you went from uncertainty about the things of God, about the you know, your own eternal future about who God is and all of those things. And you went from uncertainty to certainty that you say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. What was your moment? Here we saw Peter had his moment. And it fulfilled the scriptures just a couple of them, Psalm 16, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol or, or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever written hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross and before he was laid in the tomb. Isaiah chapter 53, 
And this is, you know, what's crazy about Isaiah chapter 53 is you, you know, you, you try this experiment sometime. You try this experiment. You take Isaiah 53, you, you know, you, you print it out, but you don't put the book that it's from. You don't put that it's from the book of Isaiah. You don't put the verses to it. You just have, you know, the paragraphs. And you hand that to a person who's Jewish. You hand that to a person who's Muslim. You hand that to a person who just has a very, like, basic understanding or, or a very little understanding about, you know, things having to do with Jesus. And you have them read that and you say, who's Isaiah 53 about? Who's that talking about? Most people are going to tell you, Jesus. It has to be about Jesus. And you say, well, where did that come from? Where was that, you know, do you know when that was written or who wrote it? You know, and to think that it was written by Isaiah 600 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And that'll make some people's heads turn a little bit. Wow. Wow. Because when we read it, when we read Isaiah chapter 53, and I'll just read parts of it this morning. But when you read, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Now listen to this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who can... Who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We'll end up having to read just mostly the whole thing because it's so good and it's so powerful. And it lets us, you know, gives us a great assurance for those who, who follow him and believe in him or for those who have been skeptical. And when you think about that historical reality, that history bears witness of when this was written. So, so long before Jesus actually walked on the earth, and went to a Roman cross. And yet it speaks so clearly of him. It speaks so clearly of him.
It's powerful for our lives. Jesus himself, in his ministry in Matthew 12, he said, it says that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, said, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Which is an odd thing to say, considering at this point how many different miracles he's done. Yet they always want another sign, another miracle. It says, but he answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three Days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so he's, let, he's letting them know that this, resi- you know, what's going to happen to him, yet they still, even the disciples, they heard this being said. And yet when Jesus dies on the cross, it's like their hope is somewhat crushed. They don't fully, they still don't fully get it until after the fact. We continue back in John chapter 20, verse 11. And remember, Mary had gone. She had seen that the tomb was empty. She tells the disciples they run and then there and then leave. But in verse 11, it says, but Mary, so this is still Mary Magdalene. She's standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying And they said to her, Women, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they had taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Women, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary... And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Now you think about this. In the historical context, again, if you're trying to make up a story, you don't use Mary Magdalene as the, like, the first one to meet the risen Savior. It's unlikely, in, in terms of, that, of the historical context that she's in, it's unlikely as a woman, her, her testimony would be taken as evidence, would even be received. More or less, a woman like Mary Magdalene, who was known in her past to have had so many problems. You know, we knew, as far as the historical context, she's demon-possessed. Jesus frees her from that. But, you know, from the world's perspective, there's a woman with lots of issues and not to be trusted. And that's who Jesus shows himself to. See, God's not into our, you know, um, he doesn't play by our rules. He doesn't play by the rules of the culture that are in place here. He's not concerned about that. So he's going to show himself to who he wants to show himself to. 
regardless of whether the culture would accept that as evidence or not. Because, why? He loves Mary as a human being, made in the image of God, and, and, and she's one of those that Jesus died for on the cross. Because he has a deep care for her, and so he doesn't care what the world says about her. Because ultimately, he's the one who gives her her value. Her quote not too long ago, and um, you know, it just said, you know, Jesus ran to the people that most people are running away from. And isn't that one of the reasons we love Jesus? Because we see in him what we should be, but most of the time what we're not. We see in him what we know to be good and loving and right and true. And we're attracted to that. But hopefully, the resurrection of Jesus is more than just a historical fact that gives us the church and gives us these other things that we care about and value. Hopefully, the resurrection of Jesus, as we believe in him, that yes, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins, you rose from the dead, that when we believe we're made a new creation, that there's a transformative power of God that then works within us and changes us from the inside out. And we become capable at that point of being more like Jesus and growing more like Jesus because we're a new creation. The resurrection of Jesus for it to be valuable in your own life, can't just change everything out there. It also has to change everything in here, in the inward person. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. You know, I want to keep reading here in John, 19, John 20, 19 through 23. Just bear with me for a minute. It says, so it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. So that's, that's Sunday. I mean, this, again, this changes everything. This changes like, you know, these were Jewish. The disciples were Jewish people who worshiped every Sabbath on Saturday, the last day of the week, the day, you know, God rested from his work of creation. You know, he, he created in six days and on the seventh day he rested, Saturday. And then, so their whole life revolved around that. And then from this point forward, they're going to, change and start meeting on the first day of the week on Sunday to meet together to take the bread and cup and remember who Jesus is from that point forward. Like, again, this changes everything in terms of who they are and their priorities. Because it was the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead and he shows himself to them. It says, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. I also send you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And what's really kind of interesting about this, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, when God makes Adam out of the dust of the ground, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So it's God who gives physical life. It's also God who gives spiritual life. And this is why Jesus, back in John chapter 3, said to Nicodemus, you know, you must be born again. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you have to have a physical birth and a spiritual birth. Now, some people get all bent out of shape when you say, you know, you have to be born again. It's like, it sounds really like this weird phrase, you know, to them, or you have to be born of the spirit. But I think what hap- what's going on a lot of times there when people buck up against that is because in that statement, what is being said is that in your, your, you as you are, in your physical self, is not good enough. That's why people say, you know, well, why do I have to be born again? And really what they're saying is, am I not good enough just as I am? Why does anything in in me need to change? I don't need to be born again. I'm just fine as I am. You can keep that. You know, we sing... Uh, with hymns been sung for many years, you know, just as you are, or just as I am, you know, come, like come, just you know, and, and this is a very true statement. Jesus takes Mary Magdalene just as she is to come to him, and what he really is going to her. Jesus will meet you just where you are, just at, just as you are. But make no mistake about it, he won't leave you that way. And that's why this rebirth, that, that's why this spiritual birth is necessary. That's why it's not enough to be just that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There also has to be that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Yes, God will meet you right where you are, but he's not going to leave you that way. If you come to him in faith. And you come to him with just a little bit of humility and say, I need you. And I need your salvation because I can't save myself. And I need you to change me because I can't change myself. And really what we're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I needed you to pay my debt because I couldn't pay it myself. And that bucks up against the, the pride of our, of our humanity that, that we always want to say, but I did it. And that's why people are always, even, even with wanting to accept Jesus, still wanting to always add something to what he did on the cross. Yes, you've got to believe that Jesus did on the cross, but you've also got to do, you know, A, B, C, D, and E. And once you've done A, B, C, D, and E, and Jesus, then, you're, then that's good enough, and you're good enough, and it's okay. But you've got to do these things. But that's not what's presented to us in the scriptures. What's presented to us in the scriptures is that 
You, you aren't good enough and there's no series of hoops that you can go through in order to make yourself good enough. But God, in his perfect holiness and justice and love, can take the humble person that just says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and declare that person justified, holy, good enough. Because of what Jesus did. But think of the insult that humans throughout the centuries have affronted God with. That says, God, thank you for Jesus coming to the cross to die for us. But Jesus, what you did on the cross isn't good enough. And therefore, I have to X, Y, and Z. Think of the affront that that is to God. And I can illustrate this very well to you if you have a loved one, especially if you have, if you have children. Just imagine on Christmas morning, you know, you, you've, you've worked and you, you've saved up and you've gotten this special gift for your child. And you hand them that gift and they un, unwrap it and they're happy and they look at it and they go, Wow, wow, mom, wow, dad, this is wonderful. Thank you. And I'm going to do the following chores to earn it. And they just take your gift and say, I'm not going to take, I'm going to take it, but I'm not going to take it as a gift. I'm going to work for it and I'm going to earn it. And what's your response going to be to that? I mean, isn't that going to make you sad? Isn't that going to be an affront to you that you have... You have done this for them out of your love for them. And they take your gift and say, I don't want it as a gift. I'm going to earn it. But when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that word he uses there for it is finished, it, it means it's paid for. It's paid in full. It was put like on, same word that's put on like receipts for a, like a bill. Stamped on. It's paid for. It's done. So when Jesus says it's finished, you can't go back and add to it and say, no, Jesus, it's not finished. I'm going to add on my own righteousness to it. My own good works. My own religious traditions. My own stuff. And together we'll make it good enough. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So when we go back to John chapter 20 in verse 26 and this is well 24 and this is great for those who are skeptics. One of the disciples was a skeptic. Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in his hand, hands, the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So his best friends, the people he's lived with for three years, walking with Jesus and doing this ministry are all telling him, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. 
And Thomas says, I'm not, I don't believe you. And I'm not going to believe until I see it myself. He's a skeptic. In verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand, put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Thomas, now again, remember who you're talking about here. You're talking about a, a Jewish man who believes you know, his, his whole life that there is you know, one true and living God And for him to say this about Jesus, my Lord and my God, it's either either truth or it's blasphemy. Again, there's no in-between here. When you look at Jesus and you say, my Lord and my God, either that's truth or that's blasphemy. Because it's always blasphemy to call someone or something God that is not. Truth or heresy. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He accepts that worship. And he says, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. In verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's one of the reasons we encourage people who are thinking about Jesus to read the Gospel of John is because he writes it for the purpose that people would know and understand who Jesus is and why he came and that he came so that people would believe that he is the Christ, meaning he is the the anointed one, the Savior, the King. And that believing you may have life in his name. Now, notice it doesn't say, and that believing, you can add him to these other things that you believe in. Or he can add him to your good works. But that believing, you may have life in his name. And this is an eternal life. It's a spiritual life. It's a real life. It doesn't mean it's going to be an easy life. That's not guaranteed or promised anywhere in the scriptures. But it will be a life that has joy in it. Again, joy is not dependent just on our circumstances, though. But on our perspective. And if we understand anything that we endure on this, in this life in terms of pain is a temporary thing. But our eternity in Jesus is guaranteed by Jesus himself. And we'll be forever with him in his presence. And there in that eternity, there will be no more crying. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain of any kind. There's not going to be any more human trafficking. There's not going to be any more slavery. 
There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more murders. There's not going to be that stuff will all go away when Jesus returns and he sets everything straight in eternity. But there is a price in that. There is a cost in that. Because we look forward to that, right? We look forward to no more tears, no more pain, no more, you know, of all the evil that's in our world. But when Jesus comes to give judgment, there is also the end of opportunity. There's the end of opportunity for people to then say, Jesus, I humble myself before you, like of my own volition. I want you to be my savior and my king. The reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because God is exceedingly loving and exceedingly patient. He's waiting for people to understand who he really is and to believe in him and to follow him. While that, that patience is still there, the door is still open for people's lives. But we need to understand when we, what we're asking for with the return of Jesus. Yes, we want that. We want him to come and we want him to come soon. But there's also that harsh reality of the end of opportunity for some. And so we don't ask for that lightly. And we don't ask for that um, without considering those that we love who don't know Jesus yet. And Jesus obviously told us even you know, to love our neighbors. So not just talking about the people you know, but even just strangers. So it's supposed to have a love for them. And the reality of it is, um, you know, we see it all the time. Even if Jesus doesn't return today, for some people today, today was their last, you know, yesterday was their last day of opportunity. They are not here today. They're not here today. You know, every, I mean, anytime you want to turn on the news, you will see that people are no longer with us. Anytime you open up your, even your local newspaper, every single day, you could go to the obituaries and read people that are no longer with us. It's just a harsh reality. And some of those are like, well, expected. Well, the person was elderly and they had this disease and, you know, everybody knew this was, was coming. And sometimes, you know, it's an, it's an 18-year-old driving a vehicle and they are no more. And nobody saw that coming. And so it's left with a question for each of us, you know, what have you done with the resurrection of Jesus? You know, it's either the greatest fact or greatest myth of history. Again, it's one of the two. It can't be anything in between. And in your own personal life, it's either where you believe or where you don't believe. It's where you have faith in him or don't have faith for him is at the empty tomb. But if you have faith in him, then 
you know, just by, by basic definition, that has to change everything because he works in you to make a new creation. But then, you know, there's that day by day walking with him that we're supposed to be striving to become like him. Now, we have to be, maintain that spirit of dependence. Lord, I can't do this without you. You know, every, every waking moment, every, every hour, we need Jesus. And you know, we need Jesus at every moment just as we've needed him at every other moment. There's not a moment where I can say, well, I didn't need Jesus that moment. You know, no, I need Jesus every single moment. But it should you know, radically change our lives in terms of our priorities, in terms of our purpose, you know, what we're living for. And it may change radical in a, in a way that you know, you have people who give up everything and they go to learn, you know, some, you know, little known dialect in some remote place. And they spend their whole life learning that, you know, just decades of their life learning that language so they can translate, you know, the scriptures for those people so that they can hear the word of God in their own language. It causes some people to give up everything and to go, you know, live among the poorest of the poor. And to sacrifice their lives and, and you know, their own, even their own physical health. It causes people, you know, a friend of mine, I'm just so thankful. Um, a friend of mine and his wife that I uh, went to college with. And they've, she's just returning from, from China in a few days from now with a second kid, that they've, special needs kid that they've adopted from China. It causes people to do things like that. It causes people to volunteer to be foster parents. It causes people to give up physical things, you know, here and now that they could have and they could enjoy so that others can have a better life and have a better future and have an opportunity even just to hear about Jesus or, or to be, have an opportunity to, to live a life where they're no longer being trafficked. But even if it's not in those ways, it should be radically transforming in how we treat our neighbors. It should be radically transforming in terms of how we do our, our work. And what spirit we do that with and what purpose you know, we do that with. In everything that we do, the light of Jesus should be shining through us. And if the light of Jesus in, in, in our pursuits, if the light of Jesus can't shine through us, then we have to examine those pursuits and say, are they worthy pursuits? Because as we enter into this relationship with Jesus, you remember have the old law, but still so many of us, we want to live just based on that old law. We want to just be able to go, well, is it right or is it wrong? And then make decisions accordingly. But how about we switch it up a little bit and start asking the question, does it, play, does it please Jesus, my Savior and King? I mean, yes, that answers the right wrong question. Stuff that's wrong gets eliminated really quickly with that, right? But it's, it's based out of relationship as opposed to rules, as opposed to doing, you know, I got to check this box, not check this box, whatever. Does it please Jesus, my Savior and King? What I'm pursuing, what I'm in, endeavoring in, and, and how I'm doing that and my attitude about it, does it please Jesus, my Savior and King?
And, and if we could just learn to ask ourselves that question, you know, I speak, preaching to myself here too, you know, as I'm driving, do I, do I drive in a way that pleases Jesus? Do I play ball in a way that pleases Jesus? When I'm having dinner with my friends, do I do so in a way that pleases Jesus? Because if he's the risen Savior and he's the risen King, then everything has to revolve around him. He becomes central in all things. And for the church, that's what we question when we're endeavoring to do something. We go, you know, does it please Jesus? Is that what he wants us to do? When we meet, again, who are we meeting to and why are we meeting together? Jesus. He's why we come to take the bread, the bread and the cup because we're remembering him. And I, and I hate to say it today, but so many churches, you know, you can go the whole service and hardly hear anything about Jesus. All you heard was how to make your life better. You know, all, all you heard was placating to the self that's within. But we have to be reminded. We benefit from this, but this isn't about us. This is about Jesus. It's for him and for his glory. And if it's for him and his glory, then, Lord, work in our hearts and move among us and may your presence and your spirit be known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness um, to us. Lord, as we meet together, may each one of us become very small. And Jesus, you become greater and greater. That we must decrease, but you must increase. Lord, in our lives, that the priority of ourselves would decrease and the priority of you would increase. That we would be asking that question, Lord, what does please you? What pleases you, Lord? In the decisions that we have to make, Lord, what pleases you? Lord, that we wouldn't just be looking out saying, hey, what's best for me? And what's best for mine in X, Y, or Z situation? But Lord, what pleases you? As we have our open time and we sing together, we say, Lord, what would please you now? What scripture to read, Lord, what would please you now? What thing to say, Lord, what would please you now? As we go throughout this week, that we would be asking that question, Jesus, in light of your death and your resurrection and your great sacrifice for me, what would please you now? And that you would give us the courage, that you would give us the guts to do it. Or just give us the will to do it. Give us the strength to do it. Even in the small things that so many times kick our tails. That Lord, in the small things, we would say, Lord, what pleases you? And I pray, Lord, that each one of us this morning would be like Mary Magdalene. Who just wanted to cling to your feet. It just wanted to be joyful and worship you and be thankful that you, Jesus, are alive. And that because you live, we can live. 
Oh, Jesus, what pleases you? Show us and help us to please you. Oh, Jesus, in your precious name.